The pixel, short for picture element, is a fundamental building block of digital images and displays. Here's a historic overview of its invention. The concept of dividing an image into a grid of small, discrete units can be traced back to the late 19th century. In 1884, Paul Nipko, a German engineer, developed the Nipko disk, an early mechanical device that scanned images using a rotating disk with a spiral of small holes. This concept later contributed to the development of television. In the 1950s and 1960s, researchers began exploring digital imaging and the representation of images using discrete elements. In 1957, Russell Kirch, an American computer scientist, created the first digital image by scanning a photograph of his son with a device called a digitizer. This image consisted of a grid of points, which can be considered as an early form of pixels. In the 1960s, advancements in video technology and space exploration pushed the development of pixel-based imaging further. NASA, for example, relied on digital imaging for space missions, and in 1965, they sent the first digital images of the moon's surface using a system developed by Dr. Alan E. Conrad. In the early 70s, the invention of the charge-coupled device (CCD) revolutionized digital imaging. Willard Boy and George E. Smith. Who were working at Bell Laboratories invented the CCD in 1969. CCDs are electronic devices capable of capturing and storing visual information as discrete elements or pixels. CCD technology played a crucial role in the development of digital cameras and image sensors. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, advancements in computer technology and the emergence of computer graphics drove the further development of pixel-based imaging. The advent of personal computers and graphical user interfaces led to the creation of pixel-based displays that utilize pixels to render images and text on screens. Over time, pixel resolution and color capabilities improved. Initially, images were represented in black and white, but as technology advanced, color pixels became prevalent. The introduction of color displays and improvements in color reproduction techniques allow for more vibrant and realistic digital imagery. With the rise of the internet. Digital cameras, smartphones, and high-resolution displays in the late 20th century and early 21st century, pixels became ubiquitous in various devices and applications. The pixel has become a fundamental unit for capturing, displaying, and processing images and videos, ranging from digital cameras and smartphones to computer monitors and television screens. Today, pixels continue to evolve with advancements in display technologies such as OLED, organic light-emitting diode, and 4K 8K resolutions. The pixel's journey from its early conceptualization to its widespread usage has significantly influenced the way we capture, display, and interact with digital visual content. A conversation with Griffin Smith, digital artist and CTC faculty. Can you describe your art practice and how you incorporate technology into your work, or like what is the role and responsibility of the digital artist in this like partnership between AI and human artist? I do a lot of work with custom-trained or what's called fine-tuned language models. So I worked originally when I did my thesis project with GPT two, which is like the grandparent of. GPT four, I guess the great grandparent if you count ChatGPT, and so I had custom datasets of authors' work that I trained unique bots on, and I had them write texts that I fed from one to the other. So I would ask my、uh, 
Walt Whitman bot to write a line of poetry, and I'd give that line of poetry to a different bot, say my uh, haiku bot or my Elizabeth Bishop bot. And the, the T in GPT is for transformer, and those are text models that just predict the next word. So originally they weren't things back then you asked questions or that were chat bots or anything. You would just give them a chunk of text and would guess the next word. So given half a line of poetry, in a new voice, it would just predict how the line would end. And so I would get little fragments that I would send between the bots. And my job, I only speak English, but my job felt sort of like a translator, sort of like an editor. And people will say things like, oh, when you're writing creatively, you have to be a writer and an editor at the same time. You need to always be speaking as yourself, but thinking about the audience. Um, but here I was with these chatbots that never thought of an audience. They don't think of anything. They just sort of spout kind of uh, logical language. And so I had to be a stand-in for all the readers as I was being creative, but I wasn't being the one writing. So my work was often about kind of these roles of reader and writer and how AI complicates it. A lot of that's different now. I'm teaching um, AI-generated art and image generation has different kinds of concerns, but in my practice in language, um, I'm taking with those ideas of translation and um, strange mixes of reading and writing. Yeah. It definitely seems like with AI, like especially a lot of the work you make, it's like uh, uh, generative, but also like it, it's like difficult to balance like the artist's like personal voice versus what the um, AI sort of is suggesting, right? For example, in Midjourney, like you would type specific prompts and then it would generate these like different variations on that. But like depending on the uh, order of the words or sort of uh, mm -hmm. how you type them out, like you get different res responses, it seems like. Yeah, a lot of what you're doing when you give it prompts, you're sort of directing its attention. When you're giving it a prompt, you're not so much adding details, is you're narrowing down what it could make. If you give it the phrase, a painting, it has such a huge reference for images tagged with that word that you're not constraining what it can do. But when you give it a good prompt, you're narrowing down its choices because it's not doing anything inspired. It's just guessing what you want to see. And so by constraining its choices in language, and that means having precise words in a certain format, the most important ones go at the beginning, you're sort of shaking it by its shoulders and pointing it in a certain direction. And by narrowing down its possibilities, whether it's in an image generator or a text generator, the prompt you give it kind of shrinks its worldview, and that's how you get good results. And it says something about having a perspective. It doesn't have a voice, but you can sort of corner it into having a perspective. Yeah, so one of your works, I think, uh, that I was looking through your site, I was really fascinated by is like the language fractals. Uh, it's it it seems like it's like a play on the traditional concrete poetry like where like you know the meaning and effect is conveyed by visual means that's related to the content of the poem so i'm wondering mm -hmm. like the form of the fractal is something that's like digitally generated and really tied to mathematics and geometry do you see your like the content of your poem like tied together with the ideas of or tied together with like the forms in somehow in some way or is it more just like a random sort of, as you said previously, like a, like directing 
a sort of abstract outcome kind of? Well, that's a great question. Um, that piece was sort of in the process of being turned into motion tracked uh, uh, as COVID hit and it stayed on just a, a trackpad and cursor. Um, but that idea was having language unfurl and having it, I've always liked the idea of lines of poetry when they don't have to be in sequence on a page, you can get um, sort of lines that repeat in space. So as they turn over like the hands of a clock, um, you can read one and pick up where you're reading on a new line because it's the same text, just in a different place. So you can sort of, sort of whiz language past people. Um, but if you repeat it, you can get motion even as people are reading the same line over and over. And when you make it interactive like that piece. Okay. Uh, maybe some questions more about like, I guess, the ethics of using AI because uh, a couple months ago, there was the controversy of like, mid-journey um having people feeding like uh like actual artists and illustrators work into the database and mm -hmm. sort of i guess you could say like stealing not stealing but like uh parodying like the livelihood of these artists and then so like just uh a, like a very random stu uh like a maybe new art student could generate something in three minutes uh do you see this like as a trend where designers and artists have to like have more voice in the future uh, to sort of, uh, I guess, circumvent their competition with AI? Or how do you see this relationship? Well, it's there's a lot of uh, push right now to have some kind of database that either represents artists' interests, pays them for their work to be used, only incorporates from free sources or open source databases. But when it comes to practical considerations, which is what tools are going to be used as a sort of baseline tool like Photoshop or Google, um, we do need to look at what to expect from legal precedent. And it's all being decided. I'm teaching studios now, and we have more legal information now than from the beginning of the semester, but we still don't have anything very solid. One court decided that the output from Midjourney doesn't belong to the person who put it in the prompt. Um, but if they arrange it on a page, the arrangement belongs to them. And they compared it to this. They said, if I give a human artist a long description in an email about what I wanted, and the human artist made it, well, I couldn't claim it was mine just because I wrote that detailed email to them. And they're comparing prompting mid-journey to writing that detailed email. Um, and so from, from a legal standpoint, it's hard to know how artists are going to actually be able to profit from the works they make. But it also seems clear that we're not heading in a direction where these companies need to compensate artists for including their work in a data set that then makes images. So yes, uh, I can put one example, like Midjourney makes Norman Rockwell images unbelievably well. It's like almost indistinguishable, it's crazy. He's doing fine, so he's not one of the artists necessarily to worry about, but he's one I think of how good they are. I mean, it's really uncanny. That's partially because he made this crazy, enormous data set in his lifetime. And so for it to be really good and get its claws into your style, you kind of need to be prolific, which is an interesting wrinkle here. I'm not sure what to do with that information. Um, but generally speaking, it's it's not the, the story of the web is sort of the story of labor theft and Google can look at all of our sites in order to send people to them. Google 
is going to run their future platform on large language models that have looked at everyone's texts and have learned how to speak from there. And they're saying it's not copyright infringement to learn from the things you've made. This came up recently because Drake had a song with his AI voice that defaked him and was put on YouTube, right? And it gets put on YouTube and Spotify and different, you know, whatever, uh, Daily Motion, all these weird off-brand video sites. And they all have different responsibilities to the copyright side. Google is stuck between a rock and a hard place because if they take it down and say it is a breach of copyright to listen to all of Drake's music and learn how to sound like Drake, well, then they're admitting it's a breach of copyright to train Bard or the models that they're building in-house on the whole internet. So they can't really admit that. But as long as they're not admitting that it's theft, they're kind of throwing every artist's work into anyone's data set who wants to take it for free. Uh, I guess like a closing question, just be like, what are some design trends or innovations in this space that you're looking forward to? And like what begin what like beginners who are interested in AI and machine learning should start with, like software wise? Well, people interested in beginning with uh, machine learning should start with ChatGPT and Midjourney. Diffusion models that make images are the most sort of shocking. If you haven't worked with AI so much, the, the quality of images they make is diverse. It's really scary. And there's a lot of creative potential. If you want to make images, but you're like me and you can't draw, um, there's a lot of exciting ways to, I mean, one way to put it is if I took the work I made with Midjourney and applied to RISD 15 years ago, I'd be the most unbelievable illustration student ever to apply to RISD of all time. And, you know, I have thousands of these really high res images and I can't draw. And so that should tell us something, um, kind of about, you know, I just, you have no choice but to be prolific. If you work with these tools, you had a big pile of stuff you really like. Um, and that's nice as an artist, but it's also overwhelming. So diffusion models like Midjourney and GPT, I would say. Um, and the things I'm looking forward to most are video game design, really. The, the experience you get from a big budget game is some of the great things about it are because there's huge teams of people behind it, like a blockbuster movie. I watch the Star Wars movies and I don't love them, but I see all the costume designers and all the VFX people and all the script writers. And that's there in big budget games, but soon the time, the, the, the sort of hours that go into building a video game are going to be so much faster with these tools. The visual assets, the textures, the annoying code, the world of debugging. I mean, debugging itself is changing when you have large language models. Um, when coders can work faster, I don't want to give coders too much credit, but, you know, but when coders can work faster, the world gets so, like, the world runs on code. And so when things can get debugged better, after the teams who can do great things get smaller, the things that a single person who doesn't want to talk to anybody can do get really, really big. And that's when you get cool artworks. It's, I like games that three team, three person teams make or single person makes in five years time. When you're powered up with these tools, games are a good example of how you can end up making this enormous complex thing without too much human labor involved. You're just steering it and suddenly you have a rich, fully coded game to play in. So game design is the thing in five years time, I think will be in the midst of a big renaissance. Artist case study, Namjoon Paik. 
Nam Jun Paik, born 1932, was a Korean artist who, op- who is often credited as one of the pioneers of video art and an early advocate for the use of screens and pixels as a medium in art. Paik was a groundbreaking artist who experimented with new forms of media, particularly video, and transformed the traditional notion of art and spectatorship. He explored the relationship between technology and culture and the potential for electronic media to facilitate communication and cultural exchange. Peck's artistic practice can be divided into three main phases, fluxus and performance art, sculpture and installation, and video art. During his early fluxus and performance art period, Peck created performances that combined music, sound, and movement. He often incorporated television sets and video cameras into his performances, manipulating the images and sound to create innovative and thought-provoking works. One of his most famous works of from this period is TV Bra for Living Sculpture, in which he created a bra made of two small television sets that displayed live footage of the wearer's breasts. This work challenged traditional gender roles and explored the relationship between technology and the human body. In the 1970s, Peck shifted his focus to sculpture and installation art, creating large-scale installations that incorporated television, video monitors, and other electronic components. One of his most iconic works from this period is TV Buddha, in which he placed a statue of Buddha in front of a television set that displayed a live image of the statue. The work explores the relationship between traditional religious iconography and modern electronic media, challenging the viewer to consider the impact of technology on spirituality and cultural traditions. In the late 1970s and 80s, Peck became increasingly interested in the potential of video as an artistic medium. He began creating video art pieces that explored the possibilities of the medium, using electronic images and sound to create abstract and experimental works. He also began collaborating with other artists, musicians, and filmmakers using video as a tool for cultural exchange and communication. One of Peck's most significant contributions to the field of video art is his use of screens and pixels as a medium. He was one of the first artists to experiment with the possibility of video as a means of creating images and manipulating them pixel by pixel. He used video synthesizers and other electronic tools to create abstract, pixelated images that explore the nature of electronic media and the possibilities of video as an artistic medium. Namjoon Peck's use of the pixel in his artwork indeed extended beyond mere experimentation, encompassing a critical exploration of technology's impact on traditional religion and human values. Let's delve into this aspect in more detail. Pixel as a symbol of technological fragmentation. Peck often utilized the pixel as a metaphor for the fragmentation and dislocation caused by technology in contemporary society. By employing pixels, which are discrete units that form a digital image, he highlighted the atomization of human experiences and the disintegration of cultural traditions. This fragmentation can be seen in his pixelated video sculptures and installations, where the image is broken down into its basic building blocks, questioning the cohesive nature of our digitalized world. Critique of Technology's Influence on Traditional Religion Peck's exploration of the intersection between technology and religion aimed to challenge and deconstruct established religious practices. Through his installations like TV Buddha, he juxtaposed the traditional religious iconography with the presence of a television screen, implying a clash between ancient spiritual beliefs and the intrusion of modern technology. This critique questioned the role of technology in reshaping traditional religious practices and the potential loss of spirituality in an increasingly digitalized world. Peck's use of pixels and screens also raised questions about the impact of technology on human values and interpersonal relationships. In his artworks, he often manipulated pixels to distort and abstract images, emphasizing the dehumanizing effects of technology by breaking down recognizable images into fragmented pixels. 
he suggested a transformation of human perception, questioning whether our increasing reliance on technology is eroding our ability to connect with one another on a meaningful level. Subversion of technological mediums. Peck's artistic practice involved subverting the intended use of technological mediums, including television and video. He appropriated and manipulated these mediums to challenge the dominance of mass media and commercialization. By distorting images on screens through pixelation or using video to create abstract, non-linear narratives, he aimed to disrupt conventional modes of communication and critique the pervasive influence of technology on our lives, provoking reflection on the impact of technology. Through his use of pixels and the screen, Peck encouraged viewers to reflect on the profound changes brought about by technology and its potential consequences. His work served as a means of initiating critical dialogue about the rapid advancements in technology and the resulting shifts in human values, spirituality, and societal structures by confronting audiences with pixelated images and technologically mediated experiences. He invited contemplation on the transformative power of technology and its implications for humanity. Ultimately, Namjoon Peck's utilization of the pixel and screens extended beyond aesthetic experimentation, encompassing a deeper critique of technology's influence on traditional religion and human values. His artworks disrupted conventional perceptions, challenged the dehumanizing aspects of technology, and encouraged reflection on the consequences of our increasingly digitalized world. Through his creative and thought-provoking approach, Peck emphasized the need to critically engage with technology and consider its impact on our collective human experience.